I really like Starbucks, even though it's five dollars a cup of coffee. I, I I get it, some say it's too expensive, but value is subjective. Walking to Starbucks, I'm like, what up? I need a double shot. Loiterer in the back says this dude's about to spend a lot. Ice in the cup, the espresso so frothy. Take a sip, like yo, that's some really good coffee. Now I know that I can get it cheaper by my own coffee beans. Values what you think, it's not a black and white movie scene where cost of goods is linked to some predetermined utility. Probably should have invested it by now. I would surely be rich. But yo, I lack common sense Value is subjective, see let's look at this objectively The cost of productivity doesn't determine our utility It's our needs, wants, and abilities that we use as a guide Along with a diamond and water paradox that deals with supply Welcome to God is Open, I'm your host Christopher Fisher Today on God is Open we're going to be talking about the value of man The value of man is important, especially in understanding systematic theology Because there's two actors in the Bible, two main actors I'll say there's Yahweh, God, and then his creation, man. And the Bible is the story of the interplay between God and man. And man has value in the story. Man is one of the participants in this relationship. Man is the person whom God interacts with, who God tries to woo, who there's there's contention, there's, there's strife between these two parties. And this is the story of the Bible. In fact, Israel, the name Israel, is struggles with God. I know that refers to the people group, but throughout the Bible, it's all of creation that struggles with God, their creator. I'd like to start us off with Psalms 8, because Psalms 8 is this poetry, this beautiful poetry written by King David, and it talks about the value of man, and it wonders, it wonders why God values man in such a way that he does. And it's a praise of God. It's a praise saying, God, we are so below you. We are so nothing. And it's just wonderful and, and fantastic that you... You show this love and you put this value on us who are nothing. It speaks a lot about Yahweh's character, his personality, his, his lovingness, his relationships with uh, his creation. He's so far above him, but he condescends. He has this care and this intricate love for his creation. It starts out, as most Psalms do, with uh, a series of praises. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and avenger. God is an enabling God. He takes the weak, he takes the defenseless, and he empowers them. He emboldens them. He gives them agency to act against their enemies. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? He's saying, I look around creation, and creation is vast. Creation is mighty. I look up at the stars and this universe, and it's, it's amazing, everything that exists. And we are so small in it, but you value us. What are we? What are, I, I don't know. If I were in your shoes, I would see, I'd see maybe man as ants. They're, they're nothing in, in comparatively to the rest of creation. Job's friends have this theology as well where, oh, man is just so small, God doesn't care about us, God just kind of does what he wants, whatever. But David uses the same argument in a, in a reversed sense. So is he subverting Job? Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like he's quoting Job, but the same theme is subverted towards a personal and relational God. He says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him 
to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the fields. He's saying that you created man, you created us a little lower than the angels. Remember back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 doesn't have a creation of angels. God is talking to the angels in Genesis 1 and says, Shall we make man in our image? Any objections? No objections. Man is created. And the first thing that happens is God empowers man, gives man dominion over the earth. And this is what's being referenced here in the Psalms. God creates man lower than the angels and gives him dominion. Man is important. Man has value. Man is in the image of God. God has this relationship with man, and this is being highlighted in this psalm. This passage, of course, is quoted in relation to Jesus in Hebrews 2, but that doesn't undermine the original meaning and the original use in regards to all of mankind, that, that God's value for mankind. Flipping to the Genesis creation account, Genesis 1.26 then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. These are important concepts. They're repeated over and over by the narrator. God made man in his image. It's important. It gives us value. We are not menials like in the other religions, in the pagan religions. We had talked about the Enuma Elish, where man is this servant creature that just works to serve the gods because the gods are lazy. No, in Genesis, we are the image of God. We are given authority. We are given dominion. We are the rulers of God's creation. We are not made for the gods. We're not made for the angels. We are not made for God. We are given our own volition, our own dominion, our own authority. Man has such value that in Genesis 9-6, this is written, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Mankind has value, so when you're killing another human being, you're killing the image of God. You're killing someone who represents God. This is a violation of God himself. This is coming, of course, after the flood, after the corruption of the earth, where the earth was in violence, killing each other. God has learned that he needs to set down guidelines, set down rules, such that creation doesn't corrupt itself again and becomes so evil, especially because mankind is in the image of God, and we don't want that image corrupted. So we see throughout the Bible that mankind has value. Mankind is valuable. God cares about man. God wants relationships with man. In fact, the entire Bible, Israel, the name Israel is struggles with God. God tries, attempts to have relationships with his creation through the whole world. Uh, that fails. Well, this is after uh, he tries to have a relationship with Adam. That fails. He tries to have a relationship with the entire world. That fails. And then he tries to have a relationship with the world through a priest nation. And that ultimately fails as well. But there's this continual attempt for God to reach us. God values us. He cares about us. He doesn't just... Uh, flood the whole earth, kill us all, and wipe his hands of it and say, it's done, it's over. He doesn't do that. We're, we still exist. We still live. He values us. He thinks there's something worth saving, some sort of relationship worth pursuing with mankind. Jesus says this, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? There's value. There's value. God cares about man. God values man. Jesus is saying, 
God has this meticulous uh, care of the world. God makes sure these birds are fed. And guess what? You are a lot more valuable than these birds. Shifting over to the Jonah narrative, we see the same theme repeated. You remember Jonah goes to Nineveh and he pre preaches that uh, 40 days and you'll be overthrown, you'll be destroyed. They all repent and uh, God doesn't destroy them. Jonah gets really mad. He wants these people dead. So he goes and sits on this hill and this plant sprouts up and this plant gives him shade, but God kills it with a worm. And uh, he gets really mad because he really valued this plant. And God is trying to give him an object lesson about value, relative value, and try to call him out because he values this plant, this, this organism, that he didn't do any work. He, he didn't do any work to get this plant, to raise this plant, or anything like that. There's no reason he should value it. He, he used to not have it. And now he doesn't have this plant that he didn't plant, that he didn't grow, that was just there and gave him some sort of benefit that he was unearned. But he'll value this plant, he'll have pity on this plant, but not Nineveh, filled with human beings. You know, the Calvinists think that, oh, if someone sins, someone's evil. Oh, no, they have no value anymore. Oh, they're, they're the worthless and, and uh, throw them in the trash. Kill all the people who ever sinned. It's, it's, that's not the theology of the Bible. The wicked city of Nineveh is spared because God values human beings. And this is what he says in Jonah 4.10. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. You, you, shouldn't, you, you, you haven't had any personal investment into this plant. You didn't grow it so that uh, I'm violating your rights by killing it, that you worked really hard to get this plant. This plant was just there. You were just benefiting from it a little bit, and then it died. And you have pity on this plant. You wish this plant didn't die. He writes this, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left, and much livestock? He's saying this city, Nineveh, is filled with things way more valuable than this stupid plant that you care about. And these people... I'm going to judge these people. These guys don't know their right and left hands from each other. They're not as culpable as someone with, with more understanding, with more cognition. These, this is a pagan nation. They're not introduced to Yahweh. They're not regularly proselytized with uh, morality. They have these pagan gods they're worshiping. They just they don't know what's going on. They're not tracking. They're not all there. And so these people have. We have more reason to have pity on these people. They are more valuable than this plant. And they have excuse, excuse as to why they aren't at where they should be. It's interesting that he throws in the livestock too. Yeah, animals do have value and not the same value of human beings. We could kill them, we could eat them, stuff like that. Originally, in the original plan of creation, uh, we were all vegetarians and you wouldn't be killing animals. Animals have value in that sense. But the flood changed that. We have introduced death. We have introduced chaos to the world. Mankind is, is in that prominent position, more so than he used to be. So that's the story of the Bible, really, that God has pity. God has value. God loves the world. Not only Israel. Not only Israel, as you see throughout the Old Testament. God says, I chose you out of all people groups, not because you're better than everyone else. It, this is a specific choosing of a people that he loves, that he rejoices over, that he sings over. But not only Israel, but the entire world. The most famous verse on this is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting 
life. And that's better rendered as, for God loved the world in this way. He's saying, this, this is how we know God loved the world. This is what he did for his love of the world. He is trading his son for the world. That's how much he loves the world. Here's Ephesians 2.4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is saying, you know, all the Calvinists are like, oh, sinners are nothing to God. Sinners are so bad. This says no. This says no. It says, God, who's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we're dead, even when we're sinners, God still values mankind. That's, that's the story of the Bible, this love relationship. Mankind rejects God, but God keeps wooing, keeps reaching out, keeps striving towards man to get man in the right relationship with God. Romans 5.8 talks about the same concept. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gives up his own son for us because he values us, because he loves us. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He's saying you're, you're not being paid for like with money, with just valuables. There's something a lot more expensive which bought you, which paid for you, which God spent for you. That's the blood of Christ, more valuable than all this treasure. That is God's value for mankind. So again, there, there's ample evidence in the Bible that God values mankind. Mankind has inherent or intrinsic value. And God values us in such a way that he's willing to give up his own son, dies on the cross, spread, spends his precious blood to pay for us, to buy us, to put us in the right relationship with God. In that sense, that's how much God values man. And it's throughout the Bible. You see that wherever you talk about God and value in mankind, God loves man. God wants a relationship with man. God wants to build this perfect kingdom. God wants a people for himself. God wants a people to whom to relate to, whom to commune with. He invites people to give him counsel, to give him feedback. He, he accepts criticism. And he, especially in Job, especially in Job, this is God's perfect person. And his perfect person is just is taking him through the ringer, just criticizing him up and down. And what does he do? Does he condemn Job? He doesn't. He says, Job, you spoke what is right and then he blesses job and he gives job things and he still loves job because job is his person job is his guy king david as well he loves king david so much that he's he's willing to overlook a lot of the same character flaws that saul has saul was disposed remember in 1 samuel 15 for for keeping alive animals for keeping alive the king of the Malachites and for taking all the spoils and treasure and stuff like that. And God says, you know, you're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to destroy everything. Those were my commands. These people have done us wrong in the past. We're just going to wipe them out. King David does the same thing. He raids the Malachites. He spoils them and he keeps it all. And God overlooks it. There's not a peep about that in the Bible of God condemning that action on behalf of David because David 
was above some criticisms because of God's love for him, his character, who he was as a person. God wants these relationships. God wants these people who love him, who want to commune with him. And he's willing to overlook a lot of flaws of people who are passionate about him. This is an interesting verse along the same lines. James 5.20, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, people want to translate that, oh, they're covering a multitude of the sinner's sins. No, they're covering a multitude of your own sins. He's saying if you're passionate about God and if you're turning people to God, you know what? Uh, all the sins, your own sins are going to be overlooked more because you're in the right mindset. You you are trying. You are eager. You are doing things. God is going to yeah value a lot more, care about you a lot more because you're the one striving for this relationship with God. And you as an individual, do you think that the mighty nations through history that are nothing, indeed less than nothing before God, that you puny man, you can thwart the will of God? Absolutely not. Who would dare to take such a position? Here they are, these two gentlemen have. They believe that God's will to save can be thwarted by someone that is less than nothing. Why listen to this? That was our favorite doctor, Dr. Zekerderiades, Dr. Zoidberg. And he, he's a very scholarly and gentlemanly doctor who knows all about doctoring. And uh, he always gives the most energetic and entertaining sermons. So I suggest you go look at his uh, rant on his Leighton Flowers, Dr. Zekerderiades debate. It is interesting. It's fun. It's fun. I have a podcast response to it in which... I, being all scholarly and doctorly, just like him, agree with everything he says. It's great. It's good. But Dr. Zacharyides, he's this Calvinist, so he has to have this uh, theology where mankind is at no value. Mankind is less than dirt. He's less than nothing in the words of Theodore Zacharyides. And we already went over a, a quick survey of the Bible showing that's absolutely not true. Not only does God love and uh, want communion with mankind and has gives him power in spite of man's low position that uh, God enables and cares for and considers mankind. But they also talk about God's value for man, that God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall have eternal life. That This is the concept of the Bible. Jesus says that man is so much more valuable than the birds. And Job God talks about man being so much more valuable than the plants. Man has value throughout the Bible. But Calvinists can't have this because in their systematic theology, God is above predicates. God is above relationships. God can't have anything that he lacks. He can't have some sort of value outside himself. The All of reality can't bring any value to God. God can't be getting something from his relationship with the earth because that would undermine God's simplicity, God's pure actuality, God being above predicates, that God being the quote-unquote perfect being, it'd be adding to him. And we can't have that. The world just has to mirror God's glory in some sort of sense which doesn't interact with the Godhead, doesn't give anything to God, make God more better, more better, right? That's, that's their big concern. You can't make God more better. You can't make him give him something that he lacks. God lacks nothing. 
And if something gives him pleasure, oh, that will undo the Godhead because then God's not the most perfect being anymore. We actually see this a lot when you're interacting with normal Calvinists. They'll all have this theology. It happens so often. I, I haven't uh, cataloged it. A lot, a lot of these things that these Calvinists do over and over, I've started to catalog and pull examples down, pull Facebook screenshots, and striking their names, of course, just to catalog how often and how, how much I see reoccurring themes when I'm dealing with these types of people. And, but this is one of those things that man is less than nothing, this worm theology. I have, uh, let's see, it's uh, James White's book pulled up, and he talks about the inability of man. Oh, man is just so worthless and devoid of all sense. He can't do anything good to please God. Uh, sinful man can't please God. Oh, yeah, but also uh, man who's not sinful also can't please God because, remember, that would give God some sort of value that God didn't possess prior and that would uh, increase the Godhead and undo who God is because of their metaphysics. So a lot of times when they're talking about things, they, they don't apply their actual views of metaphysics when talking about other concepts because it's all contradictory. It all destroys itself in the end. They would rather just not focus on how their metaphysics contradict just normal sermons and normal concepts that they're trying to explain. But here is James White, and he's quoting Spurgeon. And he agrees with Spurgeon. This is He likes Spurgeon. Now the calling of the Holy Spirit is without any regard to any merit in us. Yeah, it's just arbitrary. Yeah, right, Spurgeon. So uh, the Holy Spirit uh, interacting with man, it's just, he just picks someone randomly, they throw a dice, and that's who it is. Is, it, is that any idea of calling an election within the Bible that, that there's nothing that we can do uh, to decide whether we're elect or not? Even Paul talks about uh, how the elect, not everyone becomes children of Abraham who are children of Abraham. There, there's, there's something about the quality of person that people can opt in and out of this group. Gentiles could be grafted in if they do the certain things, and then, then uh, natural Jews can be not part of this elect. That, that's how it works. People opt in and out. Jesus' parable, the banquet with the elect, in which people opt to come into this group, this elect. That was his parable of elect. But Calvinists can't have that. They, they need their very idiosyncratic working at where there's, there's nothing that man can do. Um, God doesn't look at us and uh, decide what to do with us based on our beliefs or actions or anything like that. It's just a roll of the dice, roll of the dice, and uh, divine, eternal calling with regeneration. It's, it's this weird theology. It's not biblical. Spurgeon continues, If this day the Holy Spirit shall call out of this congregation a hundred men and bring them out of their state of sin and into the state of righteousness, you shall bring these hundred men and let them march in review. And if you could read their hearts, you would be compelled to say, I see no reason why the Spirit of God should have operated upon these. I see nothing whatever that could have merited such grace as this. Nothing. That, I could have, that could have caused the operations and motions of the Spirit to work in these men. For, look you here, by nature men are said to be dead in sin. If the Holy Spirit quickens, it cannot be because of any power in the dead men or any merit in them, for they are dead, corrupt, and rotten in the grave of their sin. Look at all the assumptions. He, when Paul uses language like dead, 
a lot of times he uses it about people who can respond and do things. It's it's a metaphorical use of the word, but Spurgeon needs to have it mirror his Calvinist notions that he imports on the text. And he just really insists on that. And the Calvinist strategy is to keep reiterating their idea of what it means to be dead and sins or whatnot. They keep reiterating it as much times as possible and just make everyone who's listening to them think that that's the natural reading of the text. It's not. Uh, you, you read all the time throughout Paul his use of language. He uses a lot of uh, hyperboles, metaphors, generalizations. That's just how he writes. And, it's, and if you use the word dead or death within Paul and you take the Calvinist meaning and apply it consistently throughout his works, it makes no sense. The Calvinists need to even reject their own use of the word dead or death depending on the context. So Spurgeon says, you take a hundred random men and uh, they're all so, so evil, they're so bad, and there's nothing that can merit any grace in them at all, because that's his Calvinist theology. We have counterexamples in the Bible. Job. Job was perfect. The language says perfect. There's multiple words used for Job's perfection. There's no sins within Job, and Job protests his innocence, and the, the narrative hinges on that being correct. So is there anything in Job? Is it like, oh, Job is so depraved and so low and so warm-like? Actually, actually, this warm theology was endorsed and uh, argued by Job's friends. Spurgeon, White, Theodore Zacharides, these are Job's friends. And God hated these people. God hated these people. God hates you, Dr. Zacharides. Here is Bildad the Shuiite. Dominion and fear belong to him, God. He makes peace in the high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man a worm? Bildad. Bildad is you, Dr. Zacharides. God hates uh, Bildad and uh, condemns him and uh, seeks to kill him. Job 42, 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to, to Job, that the Lord said to Elphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. He's got the wrath against them, and he's offering to deal with them according to their folly. He's going to kill these guys, because they are just, their views about God, what they say about God, and how they talk about how God operates, and and probably even their disrespect and disbelief of Job and what Job was telling them. It, it's all infuriating to God, this, this worm theology. Oh, man, is so low. The opposite is true throughout the Bible. And, and we don't get a sense that, uh, oh, since we're sinners, um, that God hates sin, that God hates sinners, that means mankind has no value, right? Even if you're in war, you're at war with a foreign people, uh, they're your enemies, you might hate them, they might be evil, but you really want them to reform, repent, 
and uh, come to the truth, come to the light. And, that, and that's your love for them. So hate and love are not quite opposites like you, you might want to assume, especially if you're a Calvinist and uh, you want to take verses where God hates people and then, then say, oh, they, those people have no value. God doesn't love the people he hates. Well, yeah, you can love the people you hate. Uh, emotions are complicated. Feelings are complicated. Uh, it's, it's not these on-off switches. We're, we're not engaged in a, this world of metaphysics where everything has an equal and opposite uh, state of being. And emotions are fluid. and They mix together. And so even even if let's let's say you, you first meet a girl um, you, you have all these uh, dates with her you don't know what to think maybe you hate her a little bit uh, she does something but you also kind of love her you're in love with her but you hate her you want to talk to her and spend time with her but you don't and all these things can be true at the same time it's it's it emotions don't work with these binary inputs on off on off it's it's a it's a fluid world we live in and it's a fluid world that uh, we see within god and god's emotions throughout the bible a lot of events happen and it's not always the same response it's not a calculated mechanical response it's depending on circumstances depending on moods uh, god god uh, satisfies his wrath in one passage that uh, he he hurts these people until his wrath is gone. And that's a very human emotion, something that we can relate to. We understand uh, that feeling. Here's God talking. One third of you shall die, Ezekiel 5.12. Die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword. All around you, I will scatter another third to the winds. I will draw out a sword after them. You notice the violent imagery going on here. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them. I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. This is an emotional outpouring. It's emotional satisfaction. It's uh, getting out all your anger. Someone has done something that has so hurt you that you strike back until that, that pain is gone. Again, though, this does not mean God doesn't love Israel. Another thing you see within God's love for Israel are these uh, double accounts of, of God's love for Israel when they were first forming. He talks very nostalgically about them, how, how you guys were the bride of my youth. You guys were, were good, and, and you're, you were a good people that I loved. And everything was great when we first formed out of, out of Egypt. But uh, you go look at those texts back then, and it was not like that at all. It was, it was very contentious against God. There was a lot of pain. There's God's trying to destroy them in the wilderness multiple times. There's a lot of conflict going on. So you even see nostalgia within God's recreation of Israel because of his love for them. And uh, we tend to romanticize the past, even we as human beings. We look back Oh, high school was was the best days ever, and and uh, maybe 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 if you went back and were forced to experience those days, um, you you might uh, you might rather opt for the future. Like after the Soviet Russia fell, a lot of people are like, oh, back in those days, or those were the best days. Back back in Soviet Russia were the best days. Yeah. So nostalgia is a very powerful emotion, but. 
But anyways, the point is that, uh, yeah, God had this love for them back when they're first formed that he recounts throughout the Bible. In spite of all this, this conflict, this strife in which he continually sets out to maybe destroy them or does destroy them, partially destroys them, their, their rejection of him that he has to continually deal with. The love is spoken, spoken of in spite of that. So it's not like uh, if you're evil, if you're a bad person, now, now you have no value, now God doesn't love you. Even if God hates you, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you as well. Uh, I hope that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Um, emotions are complicated. They, they, they flow together, and you could have multiple contradictory emotions at the same time because we're people. We're people. We don't work like robots. And uh, none of these concepts are work with, as mutually exclusive. Zacharias, he's got the worm theology. He's got the Job friend theology. And uh, he thinks mankind is nothing. Mankind is worms. Mankind is less than nothing. And he's very passionate about this. They believe that God's will to save can be thwarted by someone that is less than nothing. Why listen to this? This, according to Calvinistic history, is heresy, my friends. Elevating the will of man over God is heresy. Jeremiah would tell you that. Isaiah would tell you that. Daniel would. They would tell you that? They'd tell you that? Where, where would they tell you that? Yeah, throw some verses out. Uh, let's start talking about the Bible rather than your own little personal blah, 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 blah. So what he does is he conflates God being able to operate, God being powerful enough to bring his will about. He wants to put Israel into captivity. He wants to punish Israel. No one's going to be able to stop him there. And uh, he'll conflate it and he'll say, oh, what this means is that every single person on earth, everything they do from every cough to every like bad uh, taco diarrhea day, that's all God's meticulous planning. God is controlling every single atom and molecule. And so no one can thwart God's will. And God's will are these certain individuals whose names are chosen from before time began, t eternally. Uh, the, God's will is that these people be saved. And so if someone says that someone's not saved, that God wants to be saved, that's a thwarting of God. And remember, you can't thwart God because that would make God a lesser God. Oh, I can't believe in a God unless he fits my idea of perfection that I made up in my own mind because I'm a Calvinist. I have this weird platonic metaphysics that is nowhere described in the Bible. Nowhere described in the Bible. But he's got the weird theology, and so which leads to these funny rants. And uh, I, I think we need to do this test where we, we bring his rants over to a non-Christian, play him for him, and uh, just watch their reaction. It'll be like one of those react videos where the kids react to maybe someone's playing an Atari or something. They don't know what an Atari is, or they don't know what a rotary phone is, and then the kids are reacting. We'll do like the non-Calvinist reacts to... Theodore Zacharias, he goes mental. He starts talking about air conditioners bringing us closer to God. I'll tell you that. Any number of books. And you know who else will tell you that? Jesus will tell you that. Because do you know what he said? He said, without me, you can do nothing. Huh. We can build skyscrapers. Look at Genesis. Look at this great tower that we elevated. Yeah, that's what, that's what you can do, but 
The tower didn't reach the God, did it? Man can do a lot of things in this universe. We have air conditioning. Thank goodness for that, right? Men did that, right? Yes, through the wisdom that God gave them. But does that make us any closer to God? Because we- he doesn't know the context of the verses he quotes. It's so funny. Genesis 11, God is uh, in heaven, and he looks down, and uh, he sees that mankind is doing something. It says this, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So God goes down, mankind's doing something that God doesn't want, and God needs to break it up because uh, this is some sort of threat to God, and God doesn't want them having all this power. It's like the Kanye West song, no one man should have all this power. God doesn't want man having this power. He wants to break it up. And so this is why the languages are confused. It's God thwarting the will of mankind. Mankind is moving against God, and they had been, and it wasn't put in check until this moment. And this is Theodore Zacharides' proof text that... uh, them building the tower to get to where they are, they did that through God. God micromanaged that. God wanted that. God uh, predestined all of that to happen. No, not in the text. He interacts at a certain moment when he sees fit to interact with mankind. But that's all ignored by Theodore Zacharides. He would rather take, uh, that's what they like to do. They turn to these their proof texts, and if they find a concept that's similar to something they want to pretend is true, They'll throw away all the context except for that one key feature and then pull it into their little sermon. And so he has this uh, rant against air conditioners and and towers and, oh, we can't go to the bathroom if not for Jesus, is his claim. That's what he thinks Jesus is saying. Did he prove it from the context? Did he flip to that verse and talk about possible and probable meanings and what Jesus is actually talking about? No. It's this desperate attempt in order to push us into this worm theology where mankind's nothing and God is everything. Because uh, in that way, in his mind, that makes God a better God. You're trying too hard. I think you're trying too hard, Mr. Zacharides. Somebody somebody gave this guy a doctorate. All right, we're going to probably cut the podcast off at about there. But throughout the Bible, man has value. God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, for the world that whosoever believes in him shall have everlasting life. That is how much God values us. God values mankind. We have value. We are made in the image of God. Even when we were in sin and sinners, God loved us. This is the value that the Bible talks about. So when someone tries to tell you otherwise, uh, look at their proof text. Look at their context. What, what does the context say? What do the proof text say? Are they just just trying to push a narrative because they're driven by their metaphysics? Or are they trying to do acute uh, Bible reading, uh, accurate and uh, scholarly work on the Bible? Which is it? Which is it? If you have any questions or comments, uh, put that on the YouTube video. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Uh, Thank you for listening. We value different things Spend our money in different ways Trying to reach our utility Dude, stop chewing on my face We value different things Spend our money in different ways Trying to reach our utility Man, I'm about to catch a case